0: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We asked that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Rule is considered one of the top experts on natural resource securities investing. At Sprott, he leads a highly skilled team of earth science and finance professionals who also enjoy a wide reputation for resource investment management. Mr. Rule joins us ahead of the International Mining and Resources Conference October 30th through November 2nd in Melbourne, Australia where we can look forward to hearing him speak. I'll be attending this event as well. Rick, welcome back to the program.
1: Always a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you for having me on.
0: Give us a hint at what your message might be for our audience in Melbourne, Australia at the iMark event.
1: I suspect I'll be fairly popular this year, Ellis, because my talk is going to be fairly upbeat. It will consist of things like the fact that we are recovering from an ugly bear market, which means that this bull market should be fairly substantial. It will also include a discussion of the fact that mining industry investors and therefore mining company managements are becoming much more rational as a consequence of our prior bear markets, much more disciplined in terms of capital allocation. So my suspicion is that mining companies, particularly gold mining companies, will generate better results in this market than they generated in the market of the early 2000s. My message will also be that Australian mining companies seem to be more attractively valued than North American mining companies, which I'm sure will be received well in Australia. And finally, I think for the first time since the early 90s, we will see a resumption in investor interest in exploration, including generative grassroots exploration. Prior speeches that I've given in Australia have been much more somber, and as a consequence, while they were accurate at the time they were given, probably less well-received. I suspect that this time, my presentations will be received with broad smiles.
0: I'm quite certain that will indeed be the case, Rick. Your answer to my question has led to several more questions that I'm going to ask you, including the first one that comes to mind. You mentioned investor interest in grassroots exploration companies. Does that mean potentially before they've developed or reported... A resource does that kind of interest prevail such as what we saw eight to ten years ago
1: Yes, I think so. I think it's more analogous to the market that we enjoyed in the early part of the 1990s, which, of course, many people that are presently in the market don't remember. The interest will first be to companies that have made discoveries that are economic. If you look at the recent takeover of companies like Reservoir Minerals, Mariana Resources, or Integra Resources, top-tier discoveries are going at multiples that have surprised many onlookers. What that means is that investors are beginning meaning to remember that value creation takes place in exploration. If you want A way to really illustrate that, look at the incredible market capitalization of Novo Resources, which has gone from a $30 million market cap to a billion dollar market cap on a spectacular exploration theory, but really without any drill hole data. What that suggests is that the market is, again, receptive to really good exploration ideas with demonstrated upside provided that those ideas are explained in cogent fashion by respected scientists.
0: You mentioned Novo Resources and also Mariana, which, correct me if I'm wrong, originated from that part of the world, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: With Australian mining companies having interest in North America, and there are a cadre of them, how important is it for them to trade on the North American exchanges?
1: Well, certainly the fact that Australian companies are attractively priced relative to North American companies means that the North American company's cost of capital is lower than the Australian cost of capital. To the extent that Australian companies have a message that North American customers want to buy, it makes absolute sense to list in North America because it lowers your cost of capital. If, in addition to the listing, that Australian managers travel to North America often enough to service the investor community in this hemisphere simply listing in toronto doesn't generate a bid listing in toronto is a way to facilitate the participation by north american investors in your issuer but in order for that to happen in addition to facilitating it you must cause it to occur with repeated presentations in north american financial markets
0: well they can certainly do that with as much as some of them are traveling up here
1: Well, that's true. And a second point that needs to be made is that every year the investment community becomes less ethnocentric, which means that for an Australian company to be relevant, it doesn't necessarily need to have a North American project. The truth is that Australia itself is extremely fertile ground for mineral exploration and mineral production. And additionally, the Australian explorers have punched above their weight in global exploration, including particularly the Australian. Australian experience in Africa generally and West Africa in the Archean and Proterozoic terrains specifically.
0: I'm finding through my travels that our friends in Oceania and Asia seem to be a bit more educated than, let's say, I am here in California.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that you learn in places like Australia is that mining is an extremely important part of the economy and capital markets, whereas in the People's Republic of California, it's technology, technology, and technology the wholesale air conditioning business in the United States is bigger than the mining business. So it makes perfect sense that Australians, where mining plays a bigger part in the economy, would be more broadly educated about mining than Americans would be, where mining is an insignificant, at best, part of the economy. So it makes perfect sense that what you say would be true.
0: A strong portion of what Australia exports are energy metals, if you will, and that market is in Asia, as well as it being in Europe and North America. What is Sprite? doing with regard to investments in Australia?
1: Well, I want to go back to the first thing that you said. While Australia is an important exporter of energy metals, it is in fact an important exporter of many materials. And our interest in Australia isn't confined to the so-called energy or battery metals. That being said, the energy metals and the battery metals are attracting increasing investor focus brought has been actively involved as an example in the cobalt business for a substantial period of time. Our experience in Australia is fairly limited. I think we have three Australian names in that space because most of the existing cobalt production in the world, sadly, is not Australian, but rather Congolese and Russian. So our experience in the cobalt industry has been to swallow twice, and take the political risk incumbent in investing in Congo and Russia while we spend money looking for cobalt and other substances in more comfortable social circumstances, (laughs) like in Australia.
0: Speaking of cobalt and battery metals, Rick, I just attended the Benchmark Minerals Cathodes 2017 conference in Newport Beach, California, where we heard the Vice President and Managing Director of the Global Entity BASF, Michael Fitzsenko, say that his goal, the company's goal, was to mitigate their exposure to cobalt for a variety of reasons, down to 10% of battery chemistry, or shall I say 90% less than what is being used now. This was stated much to the shock of cobalt issuers and metal investors in the room, and of course. Myself. Mr. Patenko is a top-down voice. We have to listen to BASF. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, let me respond to that in two ways. In the first instance, ironically, if you increase the production of cobalt, the need to reduce the amount of cobalt in a battery goes down battery fabricators are looking for ways to reduce the cobalt content in batteries because the supply of cobalt is so constrained relative to its future demand that they're afraid that they won't be able to obtain cobalt at any price. Ironically, if you increase the production of cobalt, particularly if you can increase the production of cobalt from places like Brazil or Australia that are less troubling to users, you reduce the probability that you need to substitute other materials for cobalt in a battery. But more importantly, if you assume that the amount of cobalt in new battery configurations falls, if you look at the amount of cobalt in a battery as a percentage of battery weight relative to copper and nickel, what you find is that even if the cobalt percentage falls to 10%, that number versus the supply of cobalt and the supply of nickel and copper means that cobalt is still the most leveraged commodity in the battery. You follow what I'm saying? Even if you reduce the percentage of cobalt in the battery, if battery sales come close to matching projections, the supply of cobalt relative to the supply of nickel and copper, even in that configuration, is still tighter. Now, that being said, I have for 40 years benefited extravagantly from the copper market. And I believe that the nickel market is extremely attractive, not because of the sex associated with batteries, but rather because the nickel market, from my point of view, is in liquidation. It costs more to produce sulfide nickel deposits than they sell the nickel for, which means that if we're going to continue to have things like batteries or, more importantly, stainless steel, the nickel price simply has to go up. The sex in the equation is all in the batteries. The reality in the market is the fact that nickel is a commodity, irrespective of battery demand, that's critical to the way we live, things like automobiles and refrigerators. And if the nickel price doesn't go up, we aren't going to have stainless steel. I suspect that means the nickel price goes up.
0: Are we going to see more activity with regard to exposure for companies involved in the nickel space? Are you seeing that already?
1: I hope we don't see it for another year and a half. Why is that? Uh, Well, I hope that I'm deeply, deeply, deeply invested in the space. (laughs) before other people become attracted to it. I'm not looking at age 64 for any more academic successes. I'm looking for economic success. And an economic success involves understanding a way that a market should develop, positioning oneself in the way of the flow of money, and then enjoying the flow of money afterwards. So my hope is that the nickel market stays underdeveloped and underbought for the next 18 months while Sprott positions itself and its clients in the way of a flow of funds that we suspect will occur in 2019 and 2020.
0: In your opinion, Rick, has our economy improved as much as the administration is saying even today? And if that is the case, how are precious metals really leveraged with that?
1: I don't think that the market has improved to the extent that this administration suggests it has. I don't believe that one can ever pay too much credence to forecasts or discussions from governments. But I do believe that our economy is, in fact, improving. No credit, by the way, to the central banks or the government. And I'm delighted to see that. I'm starting to get reports from clients, anecdotal reports, to be sure. But I trust those reports more than I trust the statistics related, you know, that come out of governments, which would indicate to me that there is beginning to be uh, skilled labor shortages and production capacity shortages in parts of, in particular, the U.S. economy, which I think is a very good thing. Ironically, I think that probably benefits the precious metal space. People say that gold can't go up simultaneously with the U.S. dollar. Forgetting in the very recent past, the year 2016, where that precise thing happened. People say that gold can't go up in the face of rising interest rates. Those people forget the decade of the 1970s where the U.S. 10-year Treasury increased, if my memory serves me well, sixfold at the same time that the gold price went from $35 an ounce to $850 an ounce. Certainly, the gold price has traded conversely for 40 years to faith in the U.S. dollar, particularly faith in the U.S. dollar as expressed by the U.S. 10-year Treasury. And the U.S. 10-year Treasury is the thing that I think is important in the context of this discussion. The U.S. 10-year Treasury has been in a bull market since 1982, a tremendous bull market, with the yield falling, i.e. the relative price of the treasury rising, from 15.6, if my memory serves me well, in 1982, to 2.1 or 2.2 today. After a 35-year bull market, which I'm not saying is absolutely over. I'm just saying after a 35-year bull market, the bull market in the U.S. 10-year treasury is closer to the end than to the beginning. And if they trade inversely, that means that the market in gold is closer to the beginning than to the end. Another statistic, which I think is telling, is that very recently, I think it was Morgan Stanley, it may have been somebody else, published a report that said that Precious metals and precious metals equities comprised between one-third and one-half of 1% of investable assets and savings in the United States, down from a peak in 1981 of 8%, and a three-decade median of 1.5%. I'm not suggesting to you, Ellis, that as a consequence of being early in the bull market, that the percentage that gold and gold equities enjoys in the U.S. investment matrix goes back to 8%. I am suggesting that it's very likely, I think, in the next five years for it to climb from one third to one half of 1% to its three-decade median, which is one and a half percent. If that occurred, you would have between a three- and four-fold increase for precious metals and precious metals equities in what is still the largest investor market in the world. Now, I haven't talked about the rest of the world yet. So my own suspicion is that the relative strengthening of the U.S. economy is probably good for gold, but is at worst a negative for gold. What's really important, is the strength of gold relative to the U.S. 10-year Treasury. And I think arithmetic is on gold's side there. Arithmetic two ways. How low can you take the interest rate? How long does that bull market in bonds last? And is gold's market share in the United States with regards to other investable assets likely to rise or fall from historically low levels?
0: Can we increase investment exposure to gold without appealing to the masses that are a bit younger than you and I are, Rick? And I'm talking about millennials that are into bitcoins, cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and the like. Is this a millennial answer to risk with fiat currency and a lack of interest in precious metals? It seems that gold and silver are just not fun for young people. Should we care about cryptocurrency?
1: You know, young people didn't care about gold in 1970 either. There had been no investor interest in gold from the period of the Great Depression until 1970 gold was at best unknown, but probably unloved. Most people regarded it in the Keynesian sense as a barbarous relic until the price went up. And then suddenly there was a fascination for it. You might remember that the gold adherents today were the equivalent of millennials in the 1970s. (laughs) It's just that 40 years have passed and they're no longer in their 20s. So my suspicion is that as the precious metals price increases, and as a consequence of that, as the precious metals equities prices increase, increases, that millennials' fascination with gold will increase too. In fact, it's performance that causes people to understand the investment rationale behind the performance. People, despite their own assertions to the contrary, aren't contrarian. They aren't people who sort the world for facts and use the facts to impact their judgment. They are people who search for incidents that support their existing paradigms and prejudices and people's experience in the immediate past shape their expectation of the future a gold price that clears from $1300 to $1600 a very very small percentage increase would do wonders to cement narrative behind gold, more than any interviews that you and I could do aimed at millennials. Going back into cryptocurrencies, I think one of the things that's interesting about the cryptocurrencies is that their narrative is not dissimilar to the gold narrative. They have increased in price because there aren't any sellers. There's only buyers. When you look at a price chart of Bitcoin, as an example, I won't go into some of the minor cryptocurrencies... First of all, I've seen that chart before, and ultimately, the hockey stick graph, the backside of that chart is as steep but much less fun as the front side of that chart. But secondly, the narrative that supports the cryptocurrency is not different than the narrative associated with gold, except that... Gold isn't a promise to pay, which cryptocurrencies are. Gold is payment in and of itself. The advantage that gold has over cryptocurrencies, irrespective of the short-term performance, is that gold is a medium of exchange like Bitcoin, but it's similarly a store of value. Now listen, I'm not anti-cryptos. I was early buying Bitcoin. I was early selling Bitcoin. My experience has been wholly good, except for leaving so much money on the table, which is okay. But it's important to me, Ellis, as a consumer of currencies, which I am. I use Canadian dollars. I use U.S. dollars. I use pound sterling. I use euros. I use gold and silver. And occasionally I use cryptocurrencies. As a consumer of currencies, I want there to be lots of supply, lots of competing currencies. I want there to be a hundred cryptocurrencies so that some young geniuses in Silicon Valley can come out with an algorithm that suits my needs specifically. So I think the cryptocurrencies are good for society and I think they're good for gold too.
0: What are some of the newer questions that your long-term investors and clients have been asking you?
1: Well, I guess one advantage I have is that I've been in this business for about 40 years. So what you hear rather than new questions is questions that evoke circumstances from another era. What's most useful to me now is the discussion that I'm hearing about corporate efficiency in the extractive industry sector. You know, Ellis, people my age, people that came of age in extractive industries in the 1970s, when all commodity prices went up and all commodities equities prices went up more, viewed extractive equities as being a leveraged play on commodities prices. In other words, what we wanted from those companies was leverage to the commodity price. And ironically, the most leveraged companies were the ones with the highest cost, the most marginal producers. And so for 40 years, investment professionals like myself asked commodity-centric companies to exhibit leverage to the commodity price, which was a different way of asking them to be inefficient. And they complied. One of the lovely lessons that we learned in the last bear market is that asking companies to be inefficient is not a good thing to ask them. So increasingly, at investment conferences, I find professional investors and professional analysts asking companies questions about capital efficiency, about general and administrative expenditures relative to project expenditures, about exploration and acquisition expenditures relative to the net present value of reserves and resources added as a consequence of those expenditures. In other words, people aren't seeing anymore, what will the value of your pre free cash flow be at $1,500 gold? People are saying, I'm entrusting you to invest a dollar for me in my operations. Might I expect a return of $1. twenty-five at current commodity prices with the upside associated with commodity prices being the icing on the cake, not the entire meal?
0: Rick, we always have a great discussion and I'm grateful for your time. I look forward to hearing you speak at the International Mining and Resources Conference in Melbourne, Australia again on October 30th through November 2nd. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program.
1: Thank you for asking intelligent questions, Ellis. It's always a pleasure to be interviewed by you. Thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Learn more about Sprott Global by visiting their website, sprottglobal.com. Once again, be sure to join Mr. Rule and myself at IMARC, the International Mining and Resources Conference in Melbourne, Australia, at the Melbourne Exhibition and Convention Center, October 30th through November 2nd. And listen to this segment again on our website, EllisMartReport.com High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Eric Owens is the president and CEO of Alexandria Minerals Corporation. Alexandria Minerals Corporation trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and of the U.S. as ALX. DF Alexandria is an active growth-oriented Canadian gold exploration and development company with strategic properties located in the world-class mining districts of Val d'Or, Quebec, Red Lake, Ontario, and Snow Lake, Flin Flon, Manitoba. Alexandria's focus is on its flagship property, the large Cadillac Brake property package in Val d'Or, which hosts important near-surface gold resources along the prolific gold-producing Cadillac Brake, all of which have significant growth potential. Today I'm visiting with Eric Owens at the Precious Summit at Beaver Creek in Colorado. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Now, we're out here at Beaver Creek, and I'm going to have to ask you, like I've asked some of our other guests on the program, what brings you here?
2: Well, Beaver Creek is one of the most notable gold-related conferences in North America, anyway, and probably globally. It's a small, unique conference that brings a lot of knowledgeable people, people that are knowledgeable about the industry together. You made a great presentation yesterday.
0: You've got some fantastic news at Zone 4 Renata. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, it's great. Thanks. We just recently announced some great drill results, including things like 10 grams per ton, over 6.9 meters, uh, that sort of thing. The importance of these things is that they're expanding the gold deposit. there beyond, well beyond the limits of the last resource estimate, which was done in 2009. So we're showing that we can grow this deposit into new virgin territory with our drilling program here. Which is exactly what you forecasted several weeks ago. That's correct. Yeah, we were forecasting we would be doing this and we're certainly doing this and we have a lot more of this coming down to Pico this fall. We're just getting into the fall right now. What do you see the plan for the winter and the coming spring? We're currently finishing up a 30,000 meter drill program. I expect that to be completed in the next probably two to three weeks. So we're going to see some results from that. Yes, absolutely. So far, we've completed completed 25,000 meters of that program. We have 5,000 meters more to drill. We released last week were just the first 13 holes of this program, and we have drilled so far almost 100 holes. So we have a lot of results pending, coming out. At the end, all these drill holes are aimed at providing for us a new updated resource estimate, which we plan on releasing somewhere around January of next year.
0: The way you framed the story yesterday very nicely in your presentation, I got the impression that down the road, when everything's in place and you've developed the resource as you want. And I don't imagine you'll ever stop doing that. You may potentially be a a takeout candidate.
2: Yeah. Ultimately, that's, I think, many juniors' goal is to discover a great deposit in order for a major to come along and and buy them out. And that's generally our business model, but other things could happen as well.
0: But you're in a very prolific area and you're achieving very prolific results, better results than many of the companies in the same space. And you have some major investors involved in your portfolio.
2: Yeah. uh, We have a good, strong support by many of our investors. And uh, the top among those are the the Sprotter Sprott group, including Eric Sprott, with something on the order of about 12%. Agnico Eagle, of course, still owns 8%. They've been a long-term shareholder. We have a number of funds in, the, in both the U.S. And, and Canada as well. Dundee, Gabelli, AIS, Gold 2000. There's a number of funds that have stuck with us as well. Once you get your resource estimate, what's the plan going forward? Well, we anticipate drilling more a long trend. We have a lot of untested ground, a long trend both east and west of where we're drilling right now. This resource update will be the first step of many that I envision, and our real focus in 2018 will be even what I envision, a much larger drill program than the one we've just completed. Once we complete this 30,000 meter program, we will have completed 43,000 meters of drilling this year. So we anticipate a much bigger activity next year to try and enlarge this deposit even further.
0: Eric, thank you very much for joining you today on the program. Thank you, Alice. It's a pleasure, always. I've been chatting with Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and the U.S. as ALXDF. Just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.